And if you have a Bible, will you turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. I'm going to read the whole chapter, but it's not a long chapter, so bear with me on that. Philippians chapter 3. I'm reading from the NIV. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have a reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for seal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up uh, to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is de destruction. Their God is their stomach, and their glory is their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body.
When I was a teenager, um, I had, a, along with a few others, a private tour of the Norwich City Hall treasure room, where all the regalia of all past and present use is stored. Actually, Norwich has one of the best uh, collections of regalia in the whole of the country. Some of it dating back to the 15th century. They have swords and maces and uh, silver plates and uh, chains of office and so on uh, with a lot of history. And it's been moved now, that collection, to the uh, Castle Museum in Norwich. But uh, I was very privileged. I and a few, we were just in our teens, a few uh, friends were taken on a private tour of the treasure room. Now, we were nobodies. We had no right to be there. We had no fee to pay. We didn't have to beg entrance. We were taken in. All because our youth leader had a very important job at the city hall, and he obtained permission to take us in. Paul in Philippians 3 is rejoicing in the one who gains him access to the very presence of God, the Father, and the one who gives him hope for the future, the one who Paul lives for and is central to his life, Jesus Christ. The book of Philippians has a, a lovely run of a theme right through it, and it's rejoicing in Christ. He begins this chapter that way. Verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. His finally there is a little bit like a preacher's finally. There's a lot more to come yet. But uh, he wasn't about to close his letter. He's got more to say about rejoicing and other things in the next chapter. This is remarkable, this theme that runs through Philippians about rejoicing, because Philippians was a prison letter. Paul was writing from a prison cell, a Roman jail. He was about to go uh, to trial in front of an evil, despotic Roman emperor who had a particular dislike of Christians. How could he be so positive? How could he have so much joy that he wanted to rejoice and others to rejoice with him? The answer is simple, because of Jesus. And if you've got the Lord Jesus Christ in your life, whatever else is going on around you, you can have the joy and peace and blessing of Jesus. First of all, I want to talk about the word confidence, because uh, Paul talks about this in the first few verses of this chapter. He was dealing in his writing to the Philippians in this chapter with legalistic Jews uh, that thought they could earn, merit, deserve a right standing before God, righteousness before God, by keeping the law and the rituals of Mosaic law and ceremony. They were saying that by keeping this Jewish ritual and law was the right way to be able to come before God and be righteous. 
Paul doesn't mince his words about them. He calls them dogs, which isn't very complimentary, is it? But there's a reason he does that. You see, that was a word that often flowed from their lips. That's what the Jews, especially the uh, strict uh, legalistic Jews, how they referred to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. They called them dogs. So Paul takes that very phrase and throws it back at them and saying, you're the real uh, unrighteous ones, not the Gentiles, because of what you're saying and teaching. Lightfoot, in his commentary, takes up this idea of, of, of Paul using this term dogs for them. He says, the herds of dogs which prowl about Roman cities, eastern cities, without a home, without an owner, feeding on the refuse and filth of the streets, quarreling among themselves and attacking the passers-by, explains the application of the image. Meyer, in his commentary, says, We are bidden, therefore, to beware of people of a quarrelsome and contentious spirit, who under the guise of religion hide impure and unclean things, and who are not only defiled, but defiling in their influence. The Philippian church had some of these people there. I want to ask you a question this morning. Where do you place your confidence for acceptance before a holy God. Over the years, I've had many Christians come to me bemoaning how they feel. And very often on a Sunday morning, they've said things to me such as, let me quote, I, I remember lots of these things so well. I had one person come to me and say, I feel unworthy to take communion this morning, Pastor. Another said, I feel unworthy to pray or minister in church. I feel so unworthy. Another said, I don't deserve to be allowed to come into God's presence. Now, whether I was right or wrong, I don't know, but I always kind of reacted to that rather aggressively and said, I'm glad you know that. You are unworthy. You are unrighteous. You don't deserve to come into God's presence. You don't deserve to take communion or pray in church. None of us do. We're all unworthy. But if you've messed up this week in some way, repent of it, confess it to God, get cleansed and renewed, and then get on and do the things that God tells you you need to do. We are all unworthy. We can only come to God through Jesus Christ. Paul makes the case that if it were possible to achieve acceptance before God through keeping the law and being self-righteous, he would be head of the list, top of the bunch. He says in verse 4, if someone else thinks they have a reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as was seal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. He talks about being of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was a, the tribe of Benjamin was a very esteemed tribe in uh, Israel. They were the uh, distinguished for the fact they provided the first king to Israel, King Saul from the tribe of Benjamin. They were uh, 
given praise because they aligned with Judah when Israel sped away from the southern kingdom in the time of Rehoboam. They were also the tribe that had Jerusalem, the holy city, within their boundaries. It's a very blessed tribe to be born into. Then he says that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. In his day, a lot of the uh, Greek culture was spreading across the Mediterranean and many Jews were feeling ashamed to be Jews and trying to adopt as much Greek culture and Greek life as possible. Hebrew of Hebrews means that he abstained from all of that and kept strictly as a Jew. Then he says he was a Pharisee. They were a very select religious group and very respected. He was zealous, according to the law, blameless. How many of us could say that? According to the law, blameless. But he says, but what things were gain to me, I have counted loss for the sake of Christ. None of these achievements were wrong in themselves. That was great to have those achievements, but they meant nothing in bringing him in a righteous state before God. He said, I consider them garbage. Interesting that the anglicized NIV still uses the uh, word garbage instead of the English word rubbish. Although technically, did you know that the word garbage did um, come to England via uh, France and uh, it, it is a word that, that then migrated to the USA and we've tried transposed it into rubbish here. So I'm going to use the word rubbish instead. <laughs> All right. In the Greek, rubbish has, this word for garbage or rubbish has two uses. It could describe an animal's dung, or it could describe the scraps of food which were left over and only fit to be thrown to the dogs. Compared to Christ, he says, all his achievements, all his goodness, all his self-righteousness was like scraps to be thrown to the dogs. He said it meant nothing. We need to make sure we're building our lives on the right foundation, the foundation of faith in Jesus Christ. The church I pastored in Bath for many years, it hasn't now, but for many years, it had a false ceiling. This was suspended from the high dome on uh, wires, on a metal frame, and uh, thick uh, fiberglass um, tiles were inserted into the metal frame with a nice white under that looked like a nice white ceiling. We used to keep the uh, gallery door um, locked because of the risk that someone might think that it was a floor they could walk across and fall through. One Sunday evening, we had a, a very large, and, and I don't mean tall, he was large that way, uh, extremely large man, I'm not being disrespectful to him, it's just a fact, uh, came in, and I think he'd come into the evening service after a tour of all the public houses in Bath, because he was very unsteady as he found his way in, 
And he stayed throughout the service. And at the end, we always had a cup of tea. And while we were doing that, he made his way out of the door at the front. Now, that was the access door to the disabled toilet. So we assumed seeing him unsteadily walk out there that he was going to the disabled toilet, perhaps because he was rather a large man. Uh, the men's toilets were quite small. So we didn't think anything of it. But for some reason, instead of going into the disabled toilet, he went up the gallery steps. And whoever had been in the gallery last had forgotten to lock the door. And uh, he went into there and he saw this nice... Uh, floor that he thought was a floor, decided he would walk over it. The first we knew about it was when he came crashing through the ceiling 15 feet above us and uh, bringing with him these polystyrene tiles and the uh, metal frame parts. And uh, somehow he came down and he landed in a sitting position upon his bottom. Everyone, especially the nurses in the congregation, rushed to him and he pushed them away, got unsteadily to his feet, rubbed his bottom a couple of times and made his way out of the exit, refusing any help or attention whatsoever. I was astounded. But I just tell you that story just to break up my sermon so that I can underline the truth that you must be careful what you put your weight on, what foundation you have. And Paul says, don't build your life on a foundation of self-righteousness because it won't support you. You can't come before God in your self-righteousness. You've got to trust in Jesus Christ alone. I want to then uh, move on to the second part. He talks about Christ being at the center. And I want to focus on verse 10, particularly. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. One writer penned these words, to know Jesus is not the same as knowing his historical life. It's not the same as knowing correct doctrines regarding Jesus. It's not the same as knowing his moral example. And it's not the same as knowing his great work on our behalf. There is a way of knowing Jesus Christ that includes all of these, yet goes beyond them. Of course, we need to know Jesus as our Savior and Lord. Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Colossians 1.27 sorry, says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. I heard someone say recently, or heard of someone who saying recently, it does not say in the Bible that we must receive Jesus in our hearts. So I was taken aback by that a bit and said, well, what about John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 12? As many as receive him, to them he gave the authority to become the children of God. And that's just one scripture. We need to receive Jesus 
into our lives. Put our faith in him. And then we need to know him. We need to know him. What's your number one desire in your life? Is it for a nice sunny day? Is it for a bigger house, a better job, more money to pay the bills with? Or is it, as Paul prayed, knowing Jesus? You've got to be over a certain age, probably, for the name George Beverly Shea to mean anything to you. But if it does mean something to you, you're, 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 my, you're getting up in years a bit, um, not as much as me, perhaps, but he was the son of a minister and grew up in America during the Great Depression. He wanted to sing about Jesus, and he had a brilliant low voice. <laughs> but it was years before he got the opportunity to do so. He was then invited to sing on the Modi radio station in Chicago. Um, while he was in that ministry, a young local pastor preacher asked him if he would like to come on his Sunday evening radio show, Sunday uh, Songs in the Night, it was called. And he said yes. Later, that young pastor preacher became an evangelist and invited him to travel with him and sing at his worldwide crusades. The young preacher, of course, was Billy Graham. And George Beverly Shea traveled all over the world with him singing. The very first song he recorded was called, I'd Rather Have Jesus. Let me just read a couple of so verses to you. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hands. I'd rather have Jesus than men's applause. I'd rather be faithful to his dear cause. I'd rather have Jesus than worldwide fame. I'd rather be true to his holy name. George Beverly Shea holds a world record for singing to the most live audience cumulative live audiences it, than anyone else estimated to be 220 million people that song had it existed in the apostles Paul's day I've got no doubt it would have been his theme song I'd rather have Jesus that I may know him was his prayer there are ways we need to know Jesus I've said as saviour. We need to know him as Lord, the authority in our lives. But I want to suggest uh, to you uh, this morning that Paul had a little something perhaps more in mind here. Knowing Jesus in a life-enriching, life-entwined way. So that the very life of Jesus permeated his very moment-by-moment -moment living. James uh, Manton wrote those words, nothing between, Lord, nothing between. Lord, let thy glory, see, let me thy glory see, draw my soul close to thee, then speak in love, love to me, nothing between. That's what Paul wanted. He wanted a relationship so close to Jesus that there was nothing 
between. Then he speaks about the power of his resurrection. Now it's clear from the context, because what I'm going to say is going to perhaps take us a step further possibly, but it's clear from the context that Paul is talking about the resurrection from the dead. In the very next uh, verse, he talks about attaining to the resurrection from the dead. And uh, so on at the end of the chapter as well. But he also says here that he doesn't just want to experience the resurrection. He said that I may know the power of his resurrection. Listen to what Paul prayed for the Ephesian church in Ephesians 1.18. I pray that the eyes of your hearts may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in this present age, but the one to come. Then further in Ephesians, in chapter 3, in verse 16 and 17, he says that God would grant you according to the riches of his glorious glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And then he goes on to say that you may be filled to the full measure of the fullness of God. And then in verse 20, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. Now here's a question, let's just throw it out. I've already said I recognize the context of that verse. Is he wanting more than just the power that raises him from the dead? Is he saying, I want to live and move in the very power he wrote to the Ephesians about. Jesus did promise his disciples in Acts 1.8, you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. When we read the events of the Acts of the Apostles and the things that the disciples did, or you read the history of the 20th century Pentecostal revival and the amazing things that happened, doesn't, don't you feel a kind of stirring in your heart to want to experience and see something of that in our generation, in our time, in our lives, in our churches? Doesn't our unbelieving generation needs the power of God to bring it to repentance today? I believe the answer to those three questions I've just asked you is yes. I believe that we as Christians are in danger of being lulled into a place where we no longer believe we can see those kind of miracles and wonders happening today. The words of Isaiah to the captives in Babylon surely need to apply to us today as well. In chapter 52, he said, 
Awake, awake Zion, clothe yourselves with strength. Put on your garments of splendor. Jerusalem, the holy city, shake off your dust. Rise up, sit enthroned. Free yourself from the chains on your neck. I think we need to do that, folk. We really do. We have a Pentecost Sunday in our Christian calendar. I believe it's time for a Pentecostal experience in our lives. Fifty years ago, the power and the gifts of the Holy Spirit had such focus in Pentecostal churches that in our local church we had 56 Pentecostal Holy Spirit hymns in our repertoire without all the other songs that we sang. Now, don't misunderstand me here because it's easy to do that. I am not, I repeat, I am not suggesting that we need a change of emphasis in our worship songs in any way, okay? I am just saying that the churches in those days had a focus on the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit and expected and looked for and prayed for a move of the Holy Spirit in signs and wonders and other things. Our pastor Dave some weeks ago expressed how that when he first went into the ministry he saw a, a, a revival in the Plymouth church where wonderful things were happening week after week and he'd love to see that again. I want to just say to you, why not in Wells? Why not in our lives? Does not God want to fill us with his Holy Spirit? Jesus promised, you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And then finally, the bit we're all not too keen on in this verse, the fellowship of his sufferings. In places in our world today, Christians are suffering for their faith in Jesus Christ. Over 5,000 people were killed for their faith in Christ last year alone. Over 2,000 churches were attacked or burned to the ground because they were Christian churches last year in the world. Now, I don't believe we should court persecution because the Bible says, as far as it lies within you, you should live peaceably with all men. But the day may come when Christians in our country too join what's called the suffering church. Now, Paul was not a masochist. There's no value in self-inflicted pain, no brownie points for self-harm. Paul had already written about sacrifice in Philippians 2. He said, let this mind be in you, which was all, also in Christ Jesus. He then went on to describe how Jesus laid aside his glory in order to come and be born into humanity to suffer and die on the cross for us. He said, let that mind be in you. Have a submission. Have a sacrifice for God like that. Perhaps the challenge for us today is to be willing to what Jesus called taking up our cross and following him, putting him first, giving him priority in our lives, submitting to his word and his will, being willing to go the extra mile for Jesus. Grant Richardson has said, 
Most people in evangelical churches today are religious spectators. Most do not intend to go an extraordinary extent to live for Christ. They do not take their Christianity seriously. Is he right? I hope not. I hope that's not true of us here today. Are we willing to take up our cross and follow Jesus and give him our all? I just to wind this up. I've spoken about confidence. Is your confidence in Jesus Christ and his cross? I've spoken about knowing Jesus. Is your life entwined, wrapped up with the life of Jesus? I've spoken about the power of his resurrection. May we desire a real move of the Holy Spirit in our lives and church. And finally, may we take up our cross and follow Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father God, we just thank you for the power of your word, Lord, to challenge us and to stir us and to encourage us and to guide us and to save us. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning that Paul wrote so many years ago and yet is living and active today. And I pray, Lord, that your word will quicken our hearts. We pray that people would put their faith and trust in you, Lord, uh, Lord Jesus, you alone for salvation. We pray, Lord, that you'll pour out your Holy Spirit upon our church and upon our lives so that we may dare to believe for miracles and signs and wonders today. We pray, Lord, you help us to submit and give all, all to you. We pray this in Jesus' name.